Now, Orti has seen many scandals through the decades, but this is possibly the worst 10 days to have rocked the public service broadcaster. The week started with the Director General of Orti tendering her resignation and ended with members of the Executive Board of Orti appearing before two Oireachtas committees over nine hours. It appears to me that this was an act designed to deceive. Raising invoices for something knowing that it's not what it is. Well, it's concealment and deception. Noel Kelly was advising RTE. He was advising. He was providing with yeah. agents during COVID. Well, not agents, not agents. What was it then? It wasn't agents. I can't remember exactly. Oh, come what. on, 150,000 you gave the nod for, and you I can't didn't remember. Give the nod. I mean, this man had the whole thing in the palm of his hand. He wrote the letter of the man according to the Grant Thornton report, demanding the final settlement. He sent over a letter for the board to sign, for the DG to sign. He had the power of God. What did Noel Kelly tell you the invoices were for? Now, come on, be truthful. I am. What did he tell you the invoices were for? But just to be clear, Deputy, I I spoke to him about raising the invoices to send to the barter company. Right. So you were having a conversation with Noel Kelly about raising invoices, but you didn't know what the invoices were for. I knew the invoices. Seriously. The barter account sat outside the normal system of control. Yeah, it's a slush fund, because if you look at the definition of a slush fund, and I got it from Black's Law Dictionary, a reserve of money held secretly by a company that had no accountability for its use. This is a slush fund, so let's talk about it being a barter account. From my perspective and my colleagues on the board, none of us knew of the existence of this barter fund. That is staggering and absolutely shocking. I've spoken to Kevin Backhurst last night and I understand from Kevin that his first task will be a complete reconstitution of the executive board of RT. I'm joined now by Gillian Van Turnat, former independent senator, chartered director and an expert on governance. Gillian, I know you've sat, you currently sit on a number of boards. You will have, I assume, listened, watched a lot of the nine hours of hearings this week before those two committees. What ultimately stood out for you? Well, my my first thought, because we've heard the word governance a, a lot this week and, and a seminal report on governance is from 1992, Cabri report, where he talked about the systems which companies are directed and controlled. And this led to all of us about corporate governance, OECD, uh, EU, etc. And many organisations have progressed on their governance since that stage. Professional bodies on, on individuals have progressed. But I felt listening to this as if RT were stuck back at that time of that report. And it made me think that we were in a time warp because when I heard about the barter account, it's really reminiscent of having two books of accounts. You know, I I felt we'd gone back to that that stage of it. Uh, The practices are really far from the current norms. And I think that's why people were so taken aback. So the general public are taken aback. I know those people in professional uh, different Mm. bodies. I was talking to one chief financial officer and they said their jaw dropped when they were hearing the revelations. And any company, any organisation that has a risk register will tell you, you know, reputation is, is the price you can't put on it. For a company of 344 million budget, for 150,000, they have 
wasted away the reputation of RT and the morale of the individual staff. And, and these individuals need to be much more forthcoming. And for me, it speaks to a culture that the fact that it took <clears throat> nine hours of hearings and yet we're still, you know, we have, I'm sure everyone here in the studio will have questions. Members of the public still don't have a full understanding of what actually happened. Say more about that word culture, because there, there's a mantra out in the industry that is often, you know, culture eats strategy for breakfast, i.e. you can have all of the great strategy, mission, vision in the world. But if you're not looking after your ethics, your principles, your morals, what do we mean when we talk about RTE culture? Well, RT on its website have a set of values which, which I can talk about. And even if the executives were to live up to those values of being accountable, of being transparent, being respectful, very often you see in organisations they have these values, and but the tone comes from the top. So it is the board, it is the senior executives. Part of me, a culture is, is language. So, you know, the fact that the chair of the board very <coughs> clearly said this week the word talent should belong to the <coughs> That's really important. The executive board, I personally have a problem with that because it elevates what we would call a senior management team, an executive committee, as if there's some type of board below another board. There is one board of RTE and they should be the people who are directing uh, and then the executive are managing the day-to-day operations. And this idea that you have this executive board, I think, adds to, to the confusion. Also, the fact that you could have a commercial department that in some way operates under different rules. That, for me, speaks to the culture. Rules can be different in an organisation, but they need to be consistent. So any account, anything that's under the auspices of RT needs to have the same internal controls. It needs to be consistent. The idea that you could raise an invoice with one line of description for a significant amount is just mind-boggling. So so even on best practices there, stick with your invoicing example. Like all of us have raised invoices at different points. Like what should have been the bare minimum? Back to your point about a time warp, was there just a bare minimum of standards and expectations and best practices absent here? Yeah, there's two pieces for me on the invoices. They're they're very specific of raising an invoice. I I, you know, mean, I'm self-employed. I run my own business. I send my clients a monthly invoice whoa, wouldn't it be great if I could just put one line in for a monthly invoice? I have to give details of the product I did for them, the days I worked for them. That all has to be included in the invoice. But I think the issue for me with RTE also is on the controls is this is a significant amount and this is a non-standard event. Any one of those, either of those would equally mean it should have to go through certain extra layers of control. It's not a standard uh, practice item. So the fact that it just was just put one line of invoice <coughs> in and we'll we'll get that. And even to ask the client, you know, the, the person who's getting the money, you know, help us, what will we put on this invoice? Unacceptable. We know the Minister uh, for Media, Catherine Martin, is looking at the external review. We expect those terms of reference soon. But one of the options still available to her is the idea of a designated person or a relevant person. And that comes under the Companies Act or the Broadcasting Act. What do you think would trigger that? Is there a certain threshold? Is there something that you would expect now to see that might mean a minister will have to trigger that or no? I think if the minister is appointing someone, and I would imagine it's not just an individual, they would need a team of people given the budget and given the size of the organisation. If somebody has been appointed, they need the powers. And I think the minister, certainly what I've seen, because information has not been forthcoming, that person or individual or company who are coming in need as many powers as the government can give them. This is public money. 
Um, even if it wasn't public money, you know, but it is public money. And there has to be a higher level of transparency, a higher level of accountability. And what would those powers be? Is it powers to get all of the relevant documentation to look back on 10, 20 years? Or is it powers of decisioning? Would suddenly yeah. this designated person be able to trump uh, a director general, uh, a chairperson of the authority? If, if, this, if somebody has been sent in on behalf of the government, I, I believe that they should have all of the powers. So I think there are some very specifics that the government needs to act, ask this person. But they actually need to give them that wider scope of power that when you go in, if you then need to take further action or you need to, to you know, access, access something else or you, you know, you don't, you know, let's say the director general or the chair says, no, they can't have access. Actually, no, this person should have access to any information and all information. We, re, we have to rebuild public trust. You know, I'm a big believer in public service broadcasting. But public service broadcasting has to stand up to the test of ensuring that, you know, we are transparent. You know, it, it, the rules are different for RTE and rightly so. But yet RTE seems to have failed the basic governance standards. In that effort to rebuild trust and rebuild the, the basic expectations on governance, what do you think reconstituting the board, uh, the executive board should mean? We saw that reference during the week. What should that look like, given your own experience yeah. of going in and hitting these reset buttons with other boards in the past? Yeah, and it's very welcome that the incoming DG has talked about doing this reset. So firstly, I'd be clear about terminology. It's a management mm. team or it's an executive committee. So I would be very clear about its role for the organisation. I'd be very clear that anybody even on that committee is not above being questioned. Uh, you know, everybody needs, no, no one person in an organisation should have unfettered control. And I think that's partly what we may have seen or there is a belief of. So that speaks <clears throat> to the culture. So I have previously been a chief executive. I still have to check with different people. That's the whole purpose of corporate governance is no one person can drive something true. You can have an ambition, uh, but you need to be checked. I think then you need to look at the roles that need to be around the table. You need to ensure that you have the, those those right people, but then also transparency. Uh, so we, we've talked about publishing of, of salaries. I would think, you know, because then it came out the top 100. I prefer to say that the government or the RT would say anybody who gets an income above a certain level. Um, I, I looked at BBC, they have 150,000 sterling. So anybody above that, you go onto their website, you can see the salary band somebody is in as an employee. So it's all transparent. Everybody can, can see that. So there's very easy wins that they can do to, to rebuild that. But it has to be systemically through the organisation um, and people have to be accountable. They can't lawyer up. They can't, you know, they, you're working for an organisation. You need to be doing what's in the best interest of the organisation, not yourself. Do you think there's a way back for Orshi to build, rebuild trust? I think there is, but I would like to see a, a major step change in the information forthcoming. When an organisation with good governance is working well, um, you know, the board should have the executive backs, the executive should have the board's back, but that doesn't stop them asking really challenging <coughs> questions, being really constructive. Uh, but to be able to do that, the executive needs to lay out everything for the board. If they're asked a question, they need to lay it all out and take those questions on and, and make sure that they play their roles that are really important. And just one other red herring I felt during the week that came out, you know, because there were different red flags, but this idea of not accepting a resignation. Um, I, I, I do have a concern of that language. If somebody gives a resignation, it's a unilateral action. You can't 
unless both parties agree to walk it back, you can't walk it back. What I would like to see is, have they looked in the contract to see if there's a clause that if there is an investigation or is there a code of conduct that the individual signed that makes that they have to cooperate? Any public servant I know would cooperate after the end of their term. And that's what we should be seeking. OK, Gillian Van Turner, there, former independent senator and an expert in governments. You're staying with us, but let me introduce you now uh, to our political panel joining us this week. They are Sean mm. Fleming, Fianna Fáil TD, a Minister of State in the Department of Foreign Affairs. Michael McNamara, independent TD for Clare, joining us from the Limerick studio and here in studio as well as Paul Murphy, People Before Profit TD for Dublin South West. Many thanks to all of you for joining us today. Sean Fleming, to come to you first. Nine hours, as we said, of committee hearings. We had that nine-page statement at the start of the week. Are you satisfied based on what you've heard that we're seeing more transparency from RGE? Where do you think the stock take is at today? I'm not a bit satisfied and we start on that basis. And what I would say is that um, this issue has been going on for quite a number of years. And after the shock and awe and the revelations, I was stunned for several days, but very quickly... I came to the view, bad and all is what happened. What I'm more concerned about is the cover-up that's been going on since then by senior people involved. I'd actually liken this to Watergate. It's not the original break-in will do the damage, it's the systematic cover-up. And we've been in a cover-up situation for years now at this stage. So I believe that's where the real damage is. People knew about this and it was a hush-hush and a cover-up. And I think people who've been involved in the cover-up have to be held to account on this situation. And I think that's the space we're in. Now, you go back. This was alerted to RT through the Rodders last March, almost four months ago. And we're only at this stage now. So RTE can't wait for another six months into next year for all the reports that need to be done. They need to be done. But we need to happen, something to happen in the meantime. And I would say that when Kevin Blackhurst comes in, his best opportunity to make all the changes are from day one. If he sits waiting for a report in two months' time and another one for next Christmas, he's done for. And we're done for. And RT is it. He must act now. He has enough to go on. The, the details and the entrails of everything that happened, it'll make fabulous reading and entertainment and shock for a lot of people. And we need to get there. But you asked the question um, just at the top of the show. What was the standout moment for me in those nine hours? In one sentence, I have it, is when um, um, Sheila Nirahalig said, what was the motivation here? It appears that it was an act designed to deceive. I think that's the most important sentence that was said in the night. When the chairman of the RT authority says that, and to me, I'm not putting words in her mouth, but people who the chairperson of the board were involved in deception cannot continue in the same organisation. And we can't wait for six and 12 months to get a report onto a report and an analysis and an implementation report. There are people who have been involved in the cover-up um, have to face up to it now. And Kevin Blackhurst, when he spoke about reconfiguration, again, I'm not putting words in his mouth, but that's not, that's his new people on that. And they shouldn't be confused by telling us they have two boards, they can call it whatever they like. But I actually think Kevin has to work now. He, uh, I was very impressed impressed by the chairperson. I chair the public accounts and I don't say that lightly. And I think she's very clear, very focused. 
but we must have action now and yes other things will follow in due course Okay, Paul Murphy to bring you in the front page of the Irish Times today is talking about the third phase uh, of Grant Thornton's work what do you think is still missing what are the areas that you would like to see answered questioned if there is to be a third phase of their work now Yeah, I mean we, we still don't know who knew about this um, there's two different stories uh, D Forbes very clearly implies, if you read her statement, she says, following detailed discussions, including numerous internal communications over many months, the decision was made to do this, which was effectively uh, kind of off-balance sheet payment laundered through Renault for one year and then the other years done directly by, uh, to Ryan Tuberty and then done directly by, by RT in the, the other years. And that's what she says. The others say, we didn't know anything about this. Um, basically... She was all powerful. She said it. Well, when she said it, we couldn't question it. We just would go along. So that, that's a fundamental question that we don't have a clear answer to. How we get that, I think PAC should use its powers to compel all of the key actors to come and present themselves. And um, Because even if it isn't in D Forbes' contract, she can still be compelled to come before PAC. And I think that would make sense. I think it makes sense to do so with Ryan Tuberty. It makes sense to do so with Noel Kelly. Um, but then the government should also use its powers to send people in in terms of a full internal investigation. Like, everything has to be published here as quickly as is possible so people can get a view. Because what it all speaks to is precisely this thing of culture. And for me, what struck me about the culture thing was, like, the, the use of the word talent. It's just it's obscene, you know, that internally, within the very, very top ranks of RTE, the word talent was used to refer to, like, 10 people. So the producers, the camera operators, the set makers, everyone else, none of them, they just work, you know, and the idea that the whole organisation could be threatened in this way, this deception run in order to maintain the top of those talent is really obscene. And, and we should say there, this wasn't Renault that came up with the plan in the mm-hmm. first instance. We know that from all of the documentation. We should just say also, we did ask Orti to make someone available today. There was nobody available. We did, as part of just due process here, reach out to NK Management as part of all of this. We didn't receive a response there. And we should also say that with the Grant Thornton uh, initial report, no wrongdoing, no no question of illegality. To bring you in, Michael McNamara, uh, to that similar question, what are the questions still not answered for you? What are the voices you would like to hear before an Oireachtas committee? We know there'll be more hearings next week. Well, I mean, there are um, explosive allegations this morning on Twitter from a former um, RT presenter um, that this offshore slush fund, as Cullum um, uh, Burke defined it, uh, operated since 2012 and um, put RT in a very, put successive senior management figures in a very uh, difficult position because it was either sort of blow the cover on that or um, or uh, continue with it. Um, so I think that needs to be clarified. When was it established? Who knew about it? And I mean, everybody's pinning their hopes on Kevin Backhurst coming in. And um, he obviously operated at a senior management level in RT as, uh, for, for a period before D Forbes was appointed. He, he applied to be director general before. I mean, if he is the, 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 the great white hope that's going to sort it out, I, I think we need to know what he knew uh, when he operated at a senior management position. I don't know whether he's clarified that. I don't know if he, whether he's been given the opportunity to clarify it. But he does need to be given that opportunity and he does need to clarify what he knew back then if uh, some of the allegations made that this goes back to... Um, 
to 2012. And are I should say I'm not correct. aware of what those allegations are. Kevin Backhurst has not no, begun sorry, his no term. No, there's no allegation and... against Kevin Backhurst, okay. uh, but there are allegations that an offshore account has been operating for a long period of time um, uh, and uh, w- was used to sort of circumvent the reduction in um, in payments to senior uh, figures in RT for quite a period of time now. Okay, um, look, just to reiterate again, no questions of illegality based on the original Grant Thornton report uh, that we did receive. Thank you for that, Michael McNamara. For you, um, Sean Fleming, um, we head back into more hearings next week. Um, that questions that Gillian rose there about culture, accountability, what do you believe you will need to see in terms of that reset that rebuild of trust. Where to now for RTE? Well, what I will say on that and I'm following the team is the day-to-day operations and rebuilding of trust will come from the staff uh, within the organisation. Obviously, the board oversee that. But I do think measures have to be implemented at an operational level immediately, day one after the new chief executive comes in and whoever is working with that person. And no doubt there's excellent people in RT who've been there and will continue to have major roles and he needs to draw on that talent straight away to get it up and running and get the public to start getting trust back because it's been severely damaged. But the culture issue, there's other reports planned by the minister that will take a, a, a number of months and I think it's already understood that will take a m- number of months. But we can't have opera- RT operating in a vacuum until next year. So there must be action now on the operational matters and I do believe Kevin uh, and who, the people he'll have working with him will bring about a new culture because a new chief executive and a relatively new chairman of the board, chairperson of the board, they get one opportunity to set uh, the change in an organ and that's when they take up office and I've already complimented the, the Cahir Locker, the chairperson of the authority and Kevin must do it. They have two different roles. They, they will set the culture at the board, he will implement it but there's work he has to implement from day one. Um, Paul Murphy, we've talked about the new culture, we've talked about different structures in terms of that management piece and the authority piece. What about the business model underpinning all of this? Because we have had a lot of conversation about the commercial piece versus the public licence. What do you think should be the future construct of that? I I think that's a good point, a good question, because um, it's not to take any responsibility away from those who did all of these terrible things, right? And I think they have individual personal responsibility and we need to see exactly how many of them do. But it does seem to me a a pressure where some of this came from was the pressure to get the advertising revenue. And it seems to me that that has had quite a bad distorting effect on RTE at the very, very top level, away from its mission as a public service broadcaster towards operating the slush fund to bring the ad people out to rugby matches, fancy dinners, etc, etc. And then the need to keep the quote-unquote talent even while you know, they were imposing pay cuts on ordinary uh, staff, getting rid of staff. Um, you know, I saw Sally Hayden had a tweet that if you're a freelancer producing a radio report, you get 120 euros for a whole bunch of work that has gone into something. So this very, very stark, like, two-tier system that didn't seem to have, like, public sector, public service ethics at its core. And I think, actually, like, there's a lot of talk to say, oh, there'll never be any more public funding now as a result of this, like, you know. But I actually think what we should say is we should have an end to the commercial model. I mean, the RTE gets about 200 million euros a year in licence fees and 150 million in ad revenue. 
And I think we should scrap the ad revenue entirely. I really do. I think it's completely inappropriate that there's a story today about eight presenters driving around in free cars in the context of the climate catastrophe, the idea that Renault was sponsoring. I just That's completely inappropriate. And it can be distorting, even in a subconscious way, uh, for people. So I think instead we need to fully publicly fund RTE. Um, I don't think that should be done with a regressive licence fee, which is it is, or, or everyone pays the same regardless of your income. But instead, we should be looking at the likes of a digital services tax, uh, targeting some of the big tech corporations who operate what is what should be public space and have a major influence and obviously very, very rich corporations and then funding public service broadcasting correctly so you don't have this influence of the commercial side. Well, sorry, if Ma- I could just... Go for it, Michael McNamara. Y- yeah, I mean, uh, I... I, I I asked uh, at the committee, you know, was everything that RT broadcast, public service broadcasting, or some of it, and um, uh, the acting deputy director general said it was everything. But I, I, I really haven't convinced that this sort of dual um, and merged public service broadcaster and commercial broadcaster model is sustainable I- into the future. I mean, I do think that RTE uh, and um, uh, I suppose Ireland uh, as an entity needs to define what is public service broadcasting and RTE needs to define what public service broadcasting that it provides and what commercial broadcasting it provides because I mean it, it does it seems to me both so it's competing in the commercial space uh, bringing you know doing what um, a, a former commercial director said that every sort of publishing house does which is to um, sort of wine and dine its advertisers and keep them happy it's doing that on the one hand on the other hand it is operating with a licence fee that people are brought to court uh, for not paying Um, and I'm not I just don't see how the two are sustainable. I mean, it's it's clearer, uh, the public service broadcasting, that Tina G does because most of its output is in the Irish language, which is obviously a, a minority language, the objective, and it's an objective of the state to promote it. And of course, it has news and current affairs output, which I think generally most people would agree is, is public service broadcasting. But then you have uh, private radio stations and you have local radio stations across the entire um, state who also have a remit and a legal requirement to produce news and current affairs uh, they do it to varying standards some of them to a very very high standard um, and they don't receive okay. very much assistance if any for that so I, I just don't think that this sort of blamange uh, is sustainable into the future Sean Fleming to bring you back in there having heard Paul Murphy Michael McNamara on that future model what do you think is potentially the future funding model for Orgy and can I ask also just about Gillian's point earlier about the designated person is that something the government is actively considering still? Um, I, well it, it, it's a matter that has been mentioned and it'll be the, the cabinet will discuss this in person next week I think we didn't get a conclusion they'll discuss it and it is an ultimate option it shouldn't be the first option and if there are better options in between by getting a panel of people to do the required work well and good but a designated officer can have as broad a powers as the government feels uh, to want to give the designated officer but I would say that would be a last resort that's my personal view I haven't discussed it however the conversation we're having now is the real conversation and it's not just about RTE because we, we've mentioned you know we, we've already mentioned the local radio station yes we pay 160 euro for our TV licence and you know which I do and a million people do every year however and the one thing that hasn't been mentioned here is the elephant in the room I'm paying 70 euro to Sky that's close to a thousand a year so I'm paying almost 800 or 900 euro to Sky TV to watch television a lot of people complain 
about the 160 licence fee. So I think it's not just about RT and public sector. We have to look at there's a broader service. We need to have funding for public services, local radio and national TV. But given that it's a product that people want to pay and get entertainment from as well. We can't ignore the fact that most people are paying la- vastly more amounts than the cost of the TV for television. And I think we have to bring the whole thing under the one umbrella. Not control the private operators, which you can't look at RT in isolation and forget about all the other stations that we're looking yeah. at. Julian Van Turner, very quickly and briefly, having listened to our, our three contributors, we are seeing headlines about compelling others to come to the Public Accounts Committee. We know there's more hearings next week. What are one or two critical questions that you feel now need to be answered in the coming days? I would like to ask every senior executive in RTE to lay out if there's anything else that they have a concern over. So that would be just that this is the opportunity to come forward with any information. So in a whistleblowing type way, I would designate somebody so that we get the full truth. Uh, Because once we have the full truth, we can then start taking the next steps. Okay, very good. Thank you for that, Julian Van Turnage. Uh, Up next, after 69 speakers over four days, what did we learn from the Consultative Forum on International Security Policy? Back after these. Saturday with Colm O'Mongon on RTE Radio 1.